Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Greetings friends, I'm Mariquita Guerrera and today I would love to tell you about a book I just finished, The Quickening by Elizabeth Rush, published August 15th by Milkweed. I was first drawn to this book in large part because it seemed like a travelogue of a scientific expedition to Antarctica and I have wanted to go to Antarctica for as long as I can remember. I cannot fully explain why, it's just a stirring inside me that will likely never be satisfied. This felt like an excellent way to live vicariously, to immerse myself in the descriptions of the vast icy landscapes of the continent and the claustrophobic intimacy of life on board a ship. It was definitely that, but it was also balanced throughout with discussions of the climate crisis, our culpability within it, and whether it is ethical to have a child now knowing the future they may face and the impact their very existence will also have on the environment. It's an utterly compelling piece of creative nonfiction, and I'm in awe of and intimidated by Rush's skillful writing. Rush opens the book with her mother's recounting of the story of Rush's birth. It seemed an unconventional, though powerful, way to begin a work about traveling to the most isolated place on Earth. The choice makes sense when you realize that a significant portion of the emotional energy of this book involves Rush's own struggles around balancing her driving need to become a mother with the knowledge of the cost of that decision on a dying world. Peppered throughout, then, are short passages her shipmates on the Palmer relate to her about their own birth stories. These disclosures run parallel to Rush's rich descriptions of the catastrophe she is witnessing firsthand as the Antarctic glaciers melt and disintegrate in front of her eyes. The question then becomes more than whether it is right and good to have a child in such circumstances, a question which Rush acknowledges has been used as a weapon to denigrate and reduce births largely among poor people of color, but what such a need creates inside a person. How can it live alongside a contradictory urge to reduce the already mounting damage to the environment? Russia's answer seems to be that it can be used to propel you to work harder, do better, and teach the next generation, a generation damned most certainly, to shift its lens on the world from one that is entitled to the world's vastness to one that is a steward and caretaker of all it holds. 
This is not just, or even primarily, an existential exploration of parenthood, though. It's also an exploration of a field and a continent that has been largely excluded from the participation and work of women. This is not by accident, not an oversight. Rush says of women scientists and explorers, quote, instead of being celebrated for what they are willing to give up, women working at the poles are often considered burdensome. Not only does their presence require additional support on the ice, it also means they are withholding support they are expected to provide back home. This additional support she mentions is merely shifting from a system designed to support solely cis men to one designed to support individuals of all genders. Rush also mentions that the last continent provides an environment outside the everyday, where these women encounter more essential versions of themselves, selves that are not expected to change diapers, wear heels, or appeal to others. And truly, throughout her book, she shows that this is true. None of the women working on the Palmer are there in service positions, though nearly all the people of color hold service positions. This is something that Rush says is no coincidence, but she doesn't expound upon. Rush appears aware of her privilege, as well as the way the system is designed to create barriers and do harm to communities of color. Later in the book, she finds herself confronting quarantine and isolation in COVID, and reflects that it shows, on an accelerated and much smaller scale, how these massive worldwide events do not impact everyone the same. Obvious, I know, and not necessarily original or groundbreaking, but important to mention again regardless. Just as so many wealthy, largely white people did not suffer considerably under the constraints of COVID regulations, neither will they be hit by the hardest consequences of climate change. They will be better positioned to build large seawalls, move to more secure housing, live in neighborhoods with clean air and clean water. Climate change is, of course, a social justice issue and always has been. We do bear individual responsibility, but Rush cautions us to not confuse our own singular culpability with that overwhelming impact of corporations. Corporations like BP, whose clever marketing campaign and carbon calculator encouraged consumers to determine their own carbon footprint, shifting the conversation from the responsibilities of corporations to clean up their own act to singular people and the frequency with which they carpool and how often they reduce, reuse, recycle. Rush does cover a lot of ground in the quickening, ranging from the sexualizing of the last continent, as described in terms such as virginal, pure, and with an impenetrable core, to the reality that even their research expedition will hasten sea ice melt, which she calculates at 13 square kilometers of melt due to the 5.3 tons of CO2 they will release into the air. But it isn't all fraught existential crises or dawning realizations. The quickening also holds some exquisite descriptions of Antarctica, of the bursting colors of the light, the shades and textures of the ice and snow, the taste of the silt from the seafloor. It's a deeply textured and sensorial book. For me, the most striking and transportive passage was when she discusses the deep blue of the glacial ice and learns that she is gazing upon ice that was formed before the rise and fall of Rome before the invention of the alphabet, before sound became word. The Quickening is a rich and beautiful book, and is a wonderful addition to the chorus of books and media encouraging us to look inside and outside of ourselves, to strive and work and fight for betterment of this world. Pick it up and come along with me on a cruise to the last continent. Let's go there together and bear witness to what we have wrought.
That's all for me this time, friends. I hope you're doing well. If you're looking for me, you can find me on Instagram at O underscore Murray. And maybe, I don't know, on threads, but I have immediately neglected it. So who knows? (laughs) Until next time, be well. Hi, everyone. Renee Powers here. I am joined by Ashley, one of our content contributors. And Ashley and I are both big sports fans. And we got to talking that it's really an ethical quagmire to be a fan of especially uh especially professional sports but especially football and I say this as someone who grew up in a very football oriented family I I didn't play um I don't have brothers who played but every Saturday morning you could find us my mom and I on front of the television watching college game day the you know ESPN program and then spending the rest of that day watching college football and college football is obviously the gateway drug into professional football um into the NFL but at college football has its own like problems all sorts of problems and college athletics have all sorts of problems which we sort of touched on in our previous discussion one of the things that I struggle with as a fan is we have seen more and more injuries particularly in the NFL if you're not familiar with American sports folks listening um, outside of the U.S. The NFL is the National Football League. It is the multi-bajillion dollar industry where grown men are paid millions of dollars to play a game. And you might be thinking, oh, boo-hoo, you're getting paid astronomical paychecks to literally play games. But what we have seen getting worse and worse are... um, the injuries that these players sustain. Football is an incredibly physical sport. And with the advancement of of technology that helps them um, be even more precise with their throws and their hits and their run game and their jumping, um, with the technology advancements that helps their their padding become more streamlined, look safer but we're starting to see just like minimal padding which is if you go back to like the 90s I remember watching like I remember watching college ball in the 90s where their pads were like twice the size of them they looked like the terminator (laughs) on the football field um and now they're very sleek um there's like very minimal padding on the lower half of the body and we all know that you know concussions and and the sustained Injuries to the head is especially um, problematic. And that's great that, you know, helmets are getting more advanced and more secure, but what about the rest of the body? And we did see this happen at a recent Bills game. Damar Hamlin, a young man, 24 years old, in doing his job, was hit to sustain a blow to the chest in doing their job and um, went into cardiac arrest and, and, CPR had to be performed on the field and we're just seeing more of this and I'm terrified of how far it has to go for us to not only see some changes but some I don't know I don't know what I'm what I would like to see because I love watching this sport and yet I also know that my watching is just perpetuating the system of these young men getting 
into lifelong health complications. What are your thoughts on the ethics of being a fan, Ashley? I think about football players in general. Most of them have probably been playing since they were young. Like they've, you know, they've played in the backyard with a loved one and it turned into them playing for like Pop Warner or something and it carrying them until up until their professional career. So you have like when a football player goes, wins a game or gets a touchdown or gets their first sack, just like, oh, you know, they get to reminisce on when they were just learning how to catch a ball or how to throw a ball. So most of the players that are in the NFL have already had built a lifelong relationship with the sport and have so many memories with it. I myself, I too grew up watching college football, grew up watching, um, you know, after church on Sunday, we turn on the football game and dinner was cooking and it was just as synonymous with our Sunday as our dinner and our dessert and, and church service. And I think that a lot of us, a lot of people watch football as entertainment, not really knowing the repercussions. So that when DeMar Hamlin is hit like that, and it's, he's hit so bad that he, he he could have died then it's like okay whoa this thing that I love this thing that I watch three times a week this thing that I have season tickets to that I have tailgate parties for that I did my themed wedding to that my house is themed about um has real repercussions and it's not until we actually see it where it's like oh this is a this can be a real problem. And because most of the athletes that are in the league are black, there is this notion of, oh, just it's like a it's a modern um dog and pony show. Or it's a it's another form of a dog and pony show. Like, oh, just you know, throw the football or do whatever. And I think you saw this mostly with Colin Kaepernick. Colin Kaepernick was just a quarterback he led his team to a Super Bowl and if he had one of them a Super Bowl he probably would still be in the league because it would just be like oh he's just doing that black people banter but he won us a Super Bowl so we're going to keep him on the team but when he started to take a knee then it was like oh you're black you want to bring attention to Black struggles on a Sunday on this very field where thousands of people are in their, you know, their red and gold? Oh, no. Because he was a 49ers player. Like, oh, no. You, you, you're supposed to just throw a ball and smile. It's enough we let you have an afro. Stand up. And, and that's it. But when he used his voice in the platform that he was given because he was a quarterback, um, that backlash happened swiftly. And yeah, I just think that we have to be mindful that yes, this is entertainment, but these are also people. These are also people who have um, concerns and thoughts and want 
them to be shared who want to talk about, you know, CTE and the damage that has happened to a lot of players who are either in the league or are out of the league. And it's just a lot of discretions that have happened that the league is like, no, 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 don't talk about that. Don't talk about CTE. And, you know, when it, it when it became chic to talk about racism and ending it and during 2020, during the summer uprisings, now you have in ra- racism in the end zone. Where was that energy in 2015 when Colin Kaepernick was bringing that energy? You know, don't don't do that now. The ending racism is not just some fluke touchdown. It's been a lifelong movement for a lot of people. So I I say enjoy the sports. Do your themed weddings. Do do have the all the jackets and the paraphernalia. Yes, you want to support your team. That's something that you love. But also understand that these are human beings with a voice, with a platform that they have built that they want to use besides their cars and their sneakers and how they get to party after they've won the championship game. And recognize that you can do both. You can support and also watch. I think it's important for us to remind our audience that the majority of professional athletes um, in these large leagues, such as the NFL or the NBA, are Black. And, you know, I had a professor once who who wrote this article about um, how the NFL draft is like a modern slave trade. And I think it's so important for us to, we can't say it enough that these are human beings, right? We have to humanize these athletes because they are not pawns. They are not pawns of a a literal game. They are people who play a game. And the moment we start to dehumanize them is the moment that we start to buy into this modern, um, this modern slavery kind of metaphor. And I, I, I play fantasy football, but again, you are trading human beings through Mm -hmm. an app. Mm -hmm. Like it's kind of super gross if you think Mm -hmm. about it too hard. And I also want to make note that the majority of quarterbacks, I don't know what the stats are, but this is anic data. (laughs) Majority of quarterbacks are white. And I think it's because so many, it's more palatable. There's a few reasons why I think this is. It's more palatable for the white audience who mm-hmm. are the ones with the dollars who buy the advertising um, to see a white leader of a team. And I think that, you know, a, a quarterback is the decision maker for an offense and therefore is the one that has to be um, trusted and has to be kind of coddled and trained and white folks are just more likely to be able to afford, you know, individual private coaching for a young boy who wants to be a quarterback. So it's systemic and historical and (laughs) fucked up when it comes to, you know, what the, the audience with money prefers to see. They Mm -hmm. prefer to see a white guy calling the the shots and the black Mm -hmm. men 
putting their mm-hmm. bodies on the line in the defense mm-hmm. and in mm-hmm. in the more um, aggressive positions. The more I think about football, the more I hate it. And at the same time, I still enjoy watching it. And everything, everything about that tension is painful to me. Mm-hmm. Being a fan and being critical and just being a, a consumer of ath- athletics is really, mm-hmm. I don't know. I've, I want to know, I know you've got a book recommendation, <laughs> yes. but I also want to know what your thoughts and feelings are on this metaphor of professional sports, particularly the NFL being kind of our modern slave trade. I want to say that, yes, there are a lot of white quarterbacks and you are absolutely spot on in the way that white quarterbacks represent this palatable palatable way of an audience being able to accept the NFL, like a white quarterback being the leader and Black people putting Black football players putting their bodies on the line in order to get the touchdown and they're blamed if the, you know, they don't catch it or whatnot. There also are a number of black quarterbacks. Um, but what I've noticed is that white quarterbacks get far more chances than white, than black quarterbacks. I'm thinking about Nick Foles, um, Carson, I can't remember his name, um, but he looks like Prince Harry. Um, he's been from the Eagles he was the one from North Dakota state, I think. Okay. He's yeah. been on the Eagles. He's been on the Colts. He's on some other team. Now. I don't know if Andy Dalton is still playing, but he's I mean, somewhere. We go back to Brett Favre and the yeah. Manning brothers, yeah. these, these dynasties of quarterback yes. families. And yet, like you said, Callan Kaepernick was forced out of the NFL. Cam yes. Newton, is he still playing? Like I'm trying no. to see, no. and he could have had a stellar career. Mm-hmm. And it's also, as you were saying, white quarterbacks at a young age, having the money and the access to be nurtured. What would happen? Like, you know, Cam Newton, I have my issues with him. But what would have happened if he could have actually been nurtured instead of being seen as this loud Black man? What would have happened if the NFL had listened to Colin Kaepernick and said, you know, we're standing with him or we're kneeling with him and as the the gesture would go and the movement would go? What would happen if they actually nurtured their Black quarterbacks? You have Patrick Mahomes, um, who is in they're getting ready to have the AFC championship this weekend and if he goes you know there's there's not going to be anything said about you know if he did anything between now and the championship game um it would just be focused on okay he needs to go win a championship for that organization and he's already won a Super Bowl so he can go and kind of do whatever he wanted to but it's like oh he's won a Super Bowl though for uh for a team that wasn't doing well five years ago um so I just I keep in mind the amount of opportunities that white quarterbacks get and the nurturing that they get and of course we cannot negate Tom Brady who who should be retiring this season 
Um, Who should have retired 15 seasons ago. (laughs) He should have, you know, I think that I understand that when you've done something practically your whole life, what, what else is there for you to do? But it's time for him to explore something else. And he's given his body, his life to the NFL. He's achieved so much. I don't think anyone is going to really touch what he has done. He has built a legacy, but it's time to move on and explore what that is so that every Sunday, the pundits aren't saying, oh, Tom Brady at 45 years old. There is some ageism to that because he's setting a precedent that no other quarterback has, but it's also time to retire. It's time to explore new avenues. He has a massive contract with Fox Sports News waiting for him when he retires. And when he retired last year, that contract was ready for him and it's still ready for him. He's going to have a plush life when he is off the field. Um, so it's, it's just time to learn when to, I guess what Kenny Rogers says, know when to hold them and know when to fold them. And <laughs> Tom Brady, if you're listening to this, it's time to fold them, honey child. <laughs> Tom, Tom, listen to us. You gotta <laughs> move on, man. You gotta give somebody else the opportunity too. I mean, it's just like the quintessential old white guy stand in mm-hmm. a corporate position too long. Mm-hmm. You've got to mm-hmm. give the younger kids a chance. Mm-hmm. Regarding this podcast, one of my recommendations is $40 Million Slaves um, by William C. Roden. And he gets into this idea about um, professional sports being a form of modern day slavery. It's just that the contracts are incredibly padded. Um, Baseball players, football players, basketball players are paying, being paid yacht loads of money to do what they do. And yes, to the everyday person, it seems like they're just playing a game, but the amount of athleticism and the strategy that you have to be put, uh, have to give in order to um, play the sport is, is why they're being paid what they do because they're making people so much more money um, than they're, they're, massive contracts will ever do these they're playing for billion dollar organizations so i highly recommend that book in context of black athletes and yes they're getting paid all this money but there is so much on the line for them in order to perform and in order to make these organizations profit and to stay within respectable lines as we saw when Colin Kaepernick took a knee that was a one-way ticket out of this organization yeah um we will put links to 40 million dollar slave in the show notes um as and we'll try to find some more um resources about just like ethical consumption of violent sports because again this is all about like it's all about war. I mean, it's just a big war metaphor too. I don't yeah. know. I got big feelings. I've got a couple of um, platforms to follow. Uh, one is the GIST, T-H-E-G-I-S-T. They are a 
sports journalism platform and they do a, a great job with sharing all different kinds of sports and going into the frustration of the major media um, who focuses on the more, I guess, the more flashy parts of sports, whether it's fights or who's being traded or the, the kind of more unimportant things that get treated as important. And there's also um, together, it's T-O-G-E-T-H-R or X-R. Either way, yeah, X-R. Um, it was founded by Alex Morgan, Chloe Kim, Simone Manuel, and Sue Bird. Um, uplifting women's sports, um, various athletes and sports. Um, of course, we know Sue Bird as a basketball player, Alex Morgan as a part of the um, championship winning uh, women's soccer team. Chloe Kim is a snowboarder, I believe. Yep. She, yep. She's she's in the winter sports. And then Simone Manuel is one of the very few black swimmers. Yep. What a, a real little a mermaid. <laughs> yes. Yes. Just in case y'all need to be even more mad. Okay. <laughs> For any of you sports <laughs> sports fans who just happen to join the feminist book club listening. Listen, we're mad about a lot of things and yes. i i wear that angry feminist uh placard with pride um yes. ashley thank you for this this is wonderful wonderful thank you always for the space thank you for tuning in to today's episode of feminist book club the podcast want to be part of the club here's how you can join us obviously subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for brownie points Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. Well,